Hello everyone and welcome to another of Shared Ireland's podcasts. Today we continue our a conversation with Professor Colin Harvey. Colin is a Professor of Human Rights Law in the School of Law, Queen's University, Belfast. Colin has served as Head of the Law School, a Member of Senate, a Director of the Human Rights Centre and as a Director of Research. Before returning to Queen's University in 2005, Colin was Professor of Constitutional and Human Rights Law at the University of Leeds. He has held visiting positions at the University of Michigan, Fordham University and the London School of Economics and Political Science. He has taught on the George Washington University also, Oxford University Summer School in International Human Rights Law and on the International Human Rights Programme at the University of Oxford as well. He has served as a commissioner on the Northern Ireland Human Rights uh, Commission and is a member of the Northern Ireland Higher Education Council. Colin is also the author of several books and papers. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome our friend, Professor Colin Harvey. Welcome, Colin. Thank you very much. No problem. Colin, um, that is the longest introduction I've ever given to anyone. And um, I could have gone on and on. Where do you find the time to fit all this in? Well, I didn't rec- recognise my, my, myself in, <laughs> in, in, in some of that, you know, but, but obviously it just reflects really, I think, primarily the fact that much of the work that I've done in my life has been about, you know, really the work in relation to human rights and equality. And I think there's a sense in which, you know, that's not just work. It's part of a general purpose in life, you know, so that's helped a lot. I, I think. take it as a passion for you. Well, I'm I'm very very interested in 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 this area, and I suppose I'm not just involved in academic life to 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 write things for libraries as important and essential that is, and I very much enjoy my teaching role here. But you know, I work in the area of human rights and equality, and I very much feel you can't really, in good faith, be be involved in that area with also wanting to change the wider world mm-hmm. as well. So it's very much. A, about what you really want to do with your life, both in terms of your 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 academic career more generally, I think that's actually good advice for anybody mm-hmm. in life. You know, Absolutely. like people talk to you know talking to young people about careers. Think about what your purpose is first. Mm-hmm. What is it you want to do, and let everything else follow from that. I never thought I would be here. You know, given my own background and context. You know, and it's very much about think about purpose first, and let everything else follow from that. You mentioned your own background there very briefly, um, if you don't mind. Could you tell our listeners where you were born, yeah. what shaped your early political thinking, and I suppose what ultimately got you to the position you're in today? I was born in Derry in 1970, so I'm giving away my age for everybody. Forty nine. <laughs> a big birthday you, you, coming you up don't, next. You don't look it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it, I can tell you. A big birthday coming up uh, next year. Born in Derry, you know, grew up in a context that, that everybody knows in a city where certainly my you know, my parents' generation were, were brought up in a place where they were retreated and get, treated and regarded as second-class citizens in their own city, where, you know, the names of the civil rights movement were sort of legends, where I grew up, where the whole argument about civil rights was very, very prominent and had a very influential impact on my own decision to, to work in the area of human rights and equality. I think obviously growing up in Derry in the 70s and 80s, you know, very much lived through the conflict. And I think there's a sense in which all of us at the moment working in this area, you know, we know what 
the realities of conflict are, are like and nobody at all wants to go back to that so in a sense all of us are involved in this society and trying if you like to to hold things together to, to hold the good friday agreement i have to say in the, in the face of often quite intense pressure coming out of what we're seeing around you know boris brexit the conservative party the sort of shambles that's coming out of london yeah mm-hmm. colin you recently published a paper titled our way back to the european union can you tell our listeners about it please and, and what you know what shaped your thinking and yeah, I, th- I think one of the things uh, I want to underline, first of all, is obviously we, we, we have the backstop there in relation to the current discussions and negotiations, and that's absolutely fundamentally important. You know, it's been remarkable to see the, the amount of cross-community and international European solidarity in support of that. But ultimately, the withdrawal agreement and the backstop still takes us out of the European Union against our will. This region voted to remain in the European Union. It's clear that that Remain vote has held solid. So I've listened to people talk about, you know, a people's vote in the UK and the other discussions that are happening at the moment. But it's just to point out, you know, quite simply, really, and logically, that the Good Friday Agreement has a mechanism and a way for this region, for the North, to return to the European Union. And I just wanted to talk about that out loud, to put that on the table and express a bit of surprise that it's not been more central to the current conversations. Now, I'm not naive. I, I realise the reasons that underpin that. Some of that is around strategy. It's around tactics. And obviously, there are many, many people here in this society, unionism, who don't want to have that conversation, You know, who don't want to, to leave the UK. But if the focus of our concern at the moment is respecting the remain vote in this society, really there's a responsibility on all of us, including myself, to talk about that out loud, to, to speak about the parameters of it, and to talk about preparing for it. Because I think if, if, if we go out of the European Union against our will, that is, that is shocking. But the, the unity debate sort of transforms. It transforms into a broader constitutional conversation about this region returning to the European Union. It doesn't solve all the problems around Brexit, but it does deal with some of them. It's in the Good Friday Agreement, so we don't have to make something up. The process is already there. It can be taken forward, and I've talked about the way in which it can be taken forward. So to me, there's a sort of logical quality quality to it. I'm not naive. I understand why there are concerns and anxieties in this society with having that conversation. That's why I think many of us, and even thinking about your own work, have, have tried to couch this in terms of sharing, of a shared Ireland, of a shared island, of saying to people, look, this is an invitation to dialogue about preparing for this. And ultimately, if you know the constitutional status of this region rests on consent, and that's at the core of the Good Friday Agreement, it's the core of the constitutional compromise from 1998, if there is a right to self-determination, which there is, comprehensively endorsed on the 22nd of May 1998 by the people on the island of Ireland, then all I am saying is that we need to be prepared to test that and that in testing that, part of the argument will be this is our way back to the European Union. You mentioned there, Colin, that the, the North has been removed from the EU against the wishes of the majority of the people here. Have you had any support from the unionist community who wish to stay within the EU? Well, I think a slightly 
reframe it. I think I think there's a sense in which there's a clear uh, cross community conversation at the moment around, in particular, the debate on No Deal. Mm-hmm. I think there's widespread anxiety across all sectors of the society, which clearly has a cross community component about the disastrous impact of a No Deal Brexit on this place and the importance of the backstop there. It's clear in the last few years, in addition to that, that the unionism has been tentatively engaging. We've seen, for example, Peter Robinson, we've seen others speak out publicly in a tentative way about the need for planning, discussion and preparation. So there's a beginning of a conversation, but I'm under no illusions at all as that there's much, much more work to do in that, to ensuring that it is genuinely an invitation to an open discussion about the constitutional future. So that people will enter that conversation arguing for Irish uh, reunification as part of of the e-project. But I also fully understand that there are people who enter that conversation arguing for a continuation of membership of the UK. One of the things I, and it's a challenge really, I put out there today, and I'd like to underline really to unionism is that I don't think it's any, it's good enough any longer really for unionism or loyalism or those who advocate remaining in the UK just to sort of sit there and assume that people will agree with that position. I think unionism has to to make the case, has to make the argument. And I think one way to encourage that conversation is to do exactly what we're talking about today. Colin, what can and what does the Irish government need to do to protect the rights of citizens in Armagh, Down, Tyrone, Derry, Antrim and Fermanagh? I think, first of all, I I want to be very, very clear and commend the Irish government in terms of its approach to the Brexit negotiations. You know, like many people, I've I've watched Simon Coveney over the last few weeks and seen his patience being tested to the absolute limit. So so when I've seen Simon Coveney, Leo Varadka over the last while, you know, as an Irish citizen living here, you know, I, f- I felt proud of their interventions, that, that they have really stood their ground in relation to the backstop, that they focused this as a EU-UK conversation. And so I think they've done tremendous work and they're to be encouraged and supported in doing that. You know, they are getting pressure from all sides at the moment. However, I think the Irish government needs to take the further step in relation to the discussion we're having today. I think it should be less shy than it currently is, although I understand some of the reasons for that, in being clear that this is an option and that as a government as it has a constitutional responsibility to prepare the ground. What, what would you say to yeah. people, let's say, talking about a border poll, Irish unity, during the Brexit negotiations is unhelpful? How would you respond to them? I don't think that's helpful in itself, and I'll I'll explain why. Everybody in this conversation has underlined the centrality of the Good Friday Agreement, Mm -hmm. and that's becoming a Europe-wide conversation. In this region, in this society, constitutional aspirations are supposed to be equally legitimate. In other words, Mm -hmm. it's perfectly legitimate for somebody to argue robustly for remaining in the UK, It's perfectly legitimate for anybody to argue for a united Ireland. And if we take that obligation seriously, then in the context of Brexit, in the context of forced removal 
without consent from the European Union, it seems to me it would be utterly remarkable, for example, if nationalists and republicans in this society were to remain silent on this question in the face of that. And it would contradict the commitment that everybody at the moment apparently has to the Good Friday Agreement. So I think people are perfectly entitled to talk about it if we take the Good Friday Agreement obligations seriously. Okay, to paraphrase the movie, The Life of Brian, what has the EU done for us, Colin? I think the, the EU has been very, very important in a number of areas. It was two, two to, 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 point, to point out. One is in relation to, for example, matters of equality and human rights. I think it's provided as a supranational organisation an important overarching framework mm-hmm. in relation to a range of protections in the area of equality, non-discrimination, areas like employment law, for example, as well. I think that's been vitally important as a framework and also because it has a robust enforcement mechanism wrapped around it as well. So we'll feel a diminution when people leave the European Union in relation to, to EU law policy and practice. And the second one underlined is, is just in relation to the easing of relationships around these islands and on this island in particular, particularly around issues of freedom of movement. You know, mm-hmm. membership of the European Union has been massively significant in relation to the invisibility of the border on the island of Ireland. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody talks at the moment about its invisibility. You know, membership of the EU, single market, all that has proved to be vitally important in that. Now, I'd also like to underline, and I'm not a sort of uh, misty-eyed uh, advocate of everything EU in this. You know, I spent much of my life working in the area of human rights and equality. For example, I've worked on the rights of refugees and asylum seekers and migrants. And, you know, the EU is not perfect. Uh, the EU has itself got major problems. The EU doesn't sometimes live up to its own fundamental values on human rights, equality uh, and social justice. But I think in relation to us, it's been profoundly important as a protective overarching framework and we'll feel its loss. But also in relation to you know the ease of movement around the island of Ireland, the freedoms that we currently enjoy, I think they'll be greatly missed on the far side of Brexit. I just uh, noticed, <coughs> pardon me, on social media last night that um, I think that cars registered in, as they call it, the UK, uh, will have to wear GB stickers when entering European territory after we leave, which will obviously include people living in Strabane, Atmacloy, Derry, Fermanagh, or anywhere in the north, mm-hmm. if they have parents or dropping their kids to school or football or mm-hmm. boxing, nip into Donegal or Monaghan yeah. or wherever will have to display this GB sticker. How do you see that working? I don't see compliance rates with that being too high. I have the, to say, the, the courts could be missing. You think? <laughs> no, I don't. I think what w- w- going back to the earlier point, I think it highlights one of the the problems for a long time, actually, particularly coming out of Westminster, London, the British government. It's just an utter lack of noise and sensitivity about the realities of life here, about the Good Friday Agreement, about issues of party esteem and mutual respect, the whole rigorous impartiality obligation. You know, I think that one of the difficulties, particularly around the debate about restoring institutions here, is it's just been a fundamental, utter lack of sensitivity in regards to the rights of Irish citizens in, in this society. Tell, tell me this, you just mentioned rights there, and I want to come on to rights. My sister, living in Donegal, I'm living in the north. After the UK leaves the European mm-hmm. Union, will she, as an Irish citizen living in Donegal, have more rights than I will have living in the north as an Irish citizen? 
Well, I think there's a, a couple of things to to mention there. First thing to to mention really is, you know, you're right to to pose after Brexit. Remarkably, we'll be living in a region or a space that is a essentially a third country outside the European Union. So but, it's just but think, we're, we're well yeah. used being treated like a third country. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, you know. So you know the the journey. If you get the, the train journey from Belfast to Dublin or whatever, suddenly becomes that journey over the border becomes a journey out of and into the EU. But your question raises a, a bigger point. Um, both before Brexit and after Brexit, uh, there has been a lack of regard. For the rights of Irish citizens in the north for a very very long time you know and I think it's it's a major issue and I think the Irish government for too long has been much too shy about discussing this so for example at the moment we're, we're having what, what is essentially a fairly modest debate about presidential voting rights and ensuring that Irish citizens outside the state actually have rights to vote in presidential elections now to me that's an absolute modest you know, straightforward uh, tweak essentially that would give recognition to the rights of citizens elsewhere. How far do you suggest, Colin, um, that the Irish government should go in extending these voting rights? You know, obviously the people in the north is a given, you know, but should it also be extended to people living in England, Australia, America, Canada, throughout other parts of the world? Well, just again, going back a bit, you know, the, the issue about Irish citizens in the North also is the fact that Irish citizens in the North will continue to be European Union citizens. And I think important to point out in the December Joint Report uh, 2017, promises were made to Irish citizens here. EU citizens in the North is important that they're followed through. Look, in terms of voting rights issue, to me, it's a, it's a basic matter. We talk about civil rights and civil rights movement. Well, nothing more basic in terms of civil and political rights than the right to vote. Mm. And I think Ireland is uh, an outlier in relation to this. You know, Ireland's almost blanket exclusion approach to this really puts it outside the international norm. So essentially, I would adopt a generous approach, given Ireland's historical context, you know, the reasons why Irish citizens are elsewhere, mm -hmm. and for a multitude of other reasons, including the contribution that Irish citizens elsewhere make to Ireland at the moment. I think there needs to be generous recognition of voting rights to Irish citizens. I don't think we should be creating hierarchies of Irish citizens. Think about it at the moment. You know, the Irish government and others are off in America, talking to Irish America, talking to Irish citizens in America about assisting in the current context, about assisting in things like investment on the island. You know, give meaningful recognition to that Irish citizen. Give it in a generous and inclusive way. Mm -hmm. Very good. Given the Irish government's reluctance to engage in the unity conversation, Colin, how important is it that civic society continue to talk and debate the issues surrounding a new shared Ireland. For example, um, there was a conference in the Waterfront Hall mm -hmm. in late January this year where between 1,500 and 2,000 people gathered on a Saturday morning mm -hmm. and they heard addresses from representatives, political representatives from Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, mm -hmm. SDLP, Sinn Féin, um, Jim Dornan, yeah. different people were there. Were you at that conference and how do you think that was portrayed across the world? Yeah, I, I sp sp spoke at that, that event in, you did. in, in January and, uh, you know, I thought it was a remarkable event was 
delighted really to 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 be to be there in terms of the just explain the context of speaking when we entered the waterfront they we were taken off onto a little room at the top so we actually had no idea um how many people were there until, until we arrived went, until we arrived yes. and went into the hall so it was a bit a bit of a nerve-wracking experience you mm-hmm. know but it was really <clears throat> i thought really and without I think it was a historic, really, event. It really mm-hmm. felt something powerful on the day. It got know? a little bit of criticism, um, I suppose, by the Unionist Loyalist community, as in, you know, it was a talking shop amongst nationalists. Just, but I suppose the way that members that organised the event said that nationalism needed to have a conversation with itself first mm-hmm. and then open up the debate to others. I, I think... Th- that justification is really, in some sense, the start of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the event had a very specific, defined focus, and I thought that was perfectly legitimate as the start of a wider conversation. And it was, you know, it, it rang through the entire day that participants in the event saw this as part of a wider civic conversation. But it was a it was a chance, really, on the day, for people interested in this conversation to talk to each other. Prior to what what has really then been a sort of conversation that has spanned out across the society that one of the things that did strike me before that and i found myself in studios in advance of that event defending the rationale for it. and i i felt that i felt then and since that some of the hostility to both the event and this conversation is really quite disturbing mm-hmm. i have to say because go back to the good friday agreement go back to parity of esteem mutual respect quality of treatment you know constitutional aspirations here are supposed to be equally legitimate people should have no fear about speaking out loud about the issue of irish reunification particularly in the context of brexit but the climate of hostility that 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 emerged before and actually after that event as well and since really disturbs me as to where the society might be at and certain sections of the society might be at around the Good Friday Agreement and that wider constitutional conversation. I found it interesting during um, a couple of Shared Ireland's podcasts with um, Alex Kane and Mike Nesbitt that both of them suggested that unionism possibly couldn't put 1,500-2,000 people in the waterfront hall and have that conversation um, but I think that unionism is currently attempting to undertake such an event coming up now in a couple of weeks time I think I absolutely welcome all contributions to this conversation you know we c- couldn't be clearer from the start that this is an invitation to a wider society-wide conversation about the constitutional future and that constitutional future could have a number of outcomes. Obviously, there'll be people in the room, people in the waterfront in January, uh, had a very strong view about Irish reunification. Unionist loyalists will have a strong view the, the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there is a, an onus on unionism, particularly given the electoral politics of this place. You know, unionism itself becoming a minority in this society, that unionism cannot any longer simply sit on its hands and expect everyone else to just go along. I think unionism has to make an argument, particularly given the shambolic mess that is Brexit, particularly given what's facing this society in an ODL outcome, as to why remaining within a UK context is a viable, credible option. Just come back to previous guests we have had on. We had um, Doug Beatty, 
from the Ulster Unions Party. We had Geoffrey Donaldson from the DUP, Mike Nesbitt from UUP, Alex mm -hmm. Kane, just to name a few. Mm -hmm. Some of the comments they have made, Colin, um, one of their fears of unity is that there will be no space for their Britishness in a united Ireland. How can this be, I suppose, addressed in the forthcoming unity debate, do you think? I think it's addressed primarily by framing the conversation within the context of the institutions, values and spirit of the Good Friday Agreement, ultimately. Because, you know, one of the things that that have underlined today is that, you know, parity of esteem, mutual respect is there. You know, that, that issue of a right to be British or Irish or both, that will continue. You know, that, that's a protection in the existing agreement for unionism into a future constitutional arrangement. But, but you can, if you put yourself in their shoes, yeah. you can see that level of, I suppose, you know, fear that they maybe see Sinn Féin leading this unity push. They see Sinn Féin being an integral part in a government in the New Ireland. And I suppose their fear would be shoehorning 800,000 to a million unionists into a space where they ultimately didn't want to be. And their union is gone. Yeah, and I think, you know, there, there are many people in this society who understand very profoundly being taken to places they do not do not necessarily want to go, you know. And, and you're talking analysis. about the nationalist community here through well, partition, uh, I suppose. Nationalism partition, but also think about it a moment. We're in a society where most people are being removed from the EU, i.e. they're facing major constitutional change against their will, without yeah. the consent, and they're very anxious about that too. But I just want to <coughs> underline that I you know, I utterly understand fears, anxieties and worries about major constitutional change. You know, this society is going through that at the moment with the trauma of Brexit and the mess that the British government have made of all that by way of lack of preparation. So, you know, utterly understand fears, anxieties and worries. And that's why I think, and what's been remarkable in this conversation is that so many of us have emphasized planning, preparation. We've used the language of sharing, conversation and dialogue and really invitation that it's an invitation to conversation about how we're going to share this island together in the future it's about constitutional futures where the outcomes may be many and various and where we understand people's fears and anxieties and we prepare and that the propositions that are made are based on facts and evidence and realities and not myths for example at the moment you know one thing you'll know that we just don't talk to each other enough on this island now. <laughs> you know, the systems on this island for dialogue now are appalling. Um, and we need to get better right now at just simply talking to each other. But look, you know, in the context of this Brexit shambles, you know, nobody understands better than myself anxieties, fears and worries about major constitutional change. But the way you deal with that is you don't repeat the shambles of Brexit Britain, that we have a sensible, grown-up, planned and prepared conversation to which unionism plays an intrinsic part in shaping you know and you don't turn up to that conversation necessarily with the outcome predetermined you turn up to that conversation with unionism listening what does unionism want you know one of the things i've noticed there was an event recently and for example people will say the good friday agreement institutions will continue into united ireland and somebody in the room from um self-identified 
Protestant background said, well, you know, actually, I'm not sure I want an assembly in a, in a united Ireland. So I think it's important that we listen to what people are saying and that they get to shape the future. The future isn't just dictated to them. Just sticking with that theme, Colin, if I may, about trying to alleviate unionism's possible fears and yeah. concerns, yeah. it would seem that the next logical step yeah. for the unity movement yeah. would be to the creation of some sort of a citizens forum or yeah. assembly yeah. to ensure all voices are heard and the core issues are debated. How can pro-unity voices um, contribute or encourage the establishment of such an assembly and what format do you think it should take? It's a great question. I think at the moment um, those advocating those advocating this conversation and those advocating the, the unification option need to have, I think, a laser-like focus on the South, on the Irish government, on Irish media, on Irish civil society, on commentators in Ireland. Pressure needs to be built on the establishment of just exactly what you set out, a convention or an assembly on a time-limited basis to tease out, discuss these options. Where And we've seen gr examples of that in Ireland in recent years where we've had citizens' assemblies, where we've had constitutional conventions that have eventually led to particular outcomes you know and the advantage of that as well is remember this that that a body like that established created by the irish government will then be able to begin to hoover up build a body of evidence to begin to sponsor the research the work the programs that will begin to build up a sort of evidence based for the options that will be put forward to people when we hold these referendums in a planned systematic and prepared way but I don't underestimate, you know, there are many gaps, silences and problems still to be teased out and discussed. This assembly is set up tomorrow morning yep. by whoever, whether yep. it be jointly yep. between the British government, Irish government, even the EU or American help. Yep. I can see Sinn Féin, the SDLP, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, the Alliance, Greens. I can see a lot of parties and civic society wanting to attend these forums so that they can have an input into shaping a new Ireland. Again, going back to my previous point, what would entice unionism or loyalism to attend this event? If it was purely that the sole purpose of this event was to discuss a border poll, a new Ireland, the reunification of Ireland, United Ireland, call it what you want, why would they attend this event? I think, first of all, it's an issue of framing. Uh, one thing lying behind all that I'd like to emphasise is that it can't be the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland waking up one morning and deciding to call one of these things in three weeks' time. I think behind this assembly or forum or convention should be robust intergovernmental planning. So I think it'll be framed by a British-Irish uh, negotiation it'll be framed by the british irish intergovernmental conference i would hope in my view preceded by inclusive dialogue with the political parties and others in civic society so it's not just the irish government that it's it's framed in a in a wider context although i'd like to see the irish government make progress on on this i think in terms of encouraging inclusive dialogue one is how you frame it uh, and that'll be important it has to be an open invitation to shaping the future 
Now, people have talked about Scotland and the Scottish approach, which I think is a lot going for it in terms of providing, at the end of all this, a lot more detail. But I think if you turn up to that conversation with your own blueprint and it's done and dusted, I think it doesn't sound like a conversation. No. So it has to be open. I think initially the work will have to be done and there'll be unionists who say, I don't want to, and I've heard this, I don't want to engage in a conversation about Irish unification because I'm in the UK and that's what. There'll be unionists who want to, maybe political parties and unionism, who want to keep their focus on building the case for the union. And they may establish their own equivalent forum or something similar to do that. But one way around this, and, and you've seen this yourself, is to, 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 to begin to talk to civic society, to the business sector, the health sector, in a sectoral context, to begin to talk to, for example, civic unionists who are willing to engage in this conversation. So you may not get the big P political parties buying into this. And, you know, who knows which political parties may be unhappy with the way this is all framed as well. Um, but you may find there's an appetite in civil society here across community to want to engage this. But it has to be about shaping the future together, I think. There has to be a sense that people aren't turning up to this forum or convention or assembly and being told, there you go, like it or not, this is what's going to happen. I think there has to be a real sense that concerns, anxieties, fears of unionism, political unionism, civic unionism are being listened to, heard and are shaping the future. And on some of these issues, to be candid, there's things that the Irish government could be doing now already to, to accommodate uh, unionist fears and anxieties about the future. You've spoken in the past, Colin, about bringing civility to the conversation. Uh, when we talk about Irish unity, you've made the comparison that when talking about unity, we are told by certain quarters that it's divisive, inflammatory and dangerous. But that the same is not said when people speak about strengthening the union. How can pro-unity voices readdress the balance here? There's, it's a great question. I, th I think at the moment there's a real worry in this society that the Good Friday Agreement is under sustained attack and is at real risk. And I think one of the ways we have to challenge that is that we have to make the Good Friday Agreement mean what it says in this area. It's quite clear that the constitutional compromise from 98 is based on the notion that you know membership of the UK rests on consent, that aspirations are equally legitimate, that if we can't talk about this stuff, if we can't plan and prepare for it in the context of Brexit, you know, when can we bloody talk about it? You know what I mean? In this sort of seismic constitutional transition that mm -hmm. we're currently going through. So I think it's not divisive. It's not unhelpful. I would say it's divisive and unhelpful to ignore this because the, the constitutionally responsible people in the room are the people who are talking about planning and preparing for something that I think is coming. And I think, look, if, if there's a no-deal Brexit at the end of October, this conversation is going to be turbocharged and intensify. People will see this as their way back to the European Union. And I think the responsible people in that conversation are not avoiding it. They're not burying their heads in the sand. They're not dismissing those who raise it. They're planning and preparing for it. And look, let me be clear, if the Irish government will not take responsibility for leading aspects of this conversation, as as we're doing today, right? By by things like this podcast and other civic initiatives, civic society will take the lead as it has always done here in driving forward this discussion with or without the Irish government. 
Do you think calling too many people has the goal of unity become even more appealing now that it would be automatically see the North rejoin the Absol EU? Absolutely right. Look, it's just, you know, one of the things I'm trying to underline, I don't want to, you know, there's a risk in putting all eggs in the Brexit basket in terms mm. of this this conversation. I also don't want to in any way, you know, undermine uh, the sense that, you know, the EU is not without its flaws. You know, the EU is, 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 is not perfect. But it seems to me there's a compelling logic around the idea that this conversation also now becomes a discussion about preparation in a sensible way for returning to the European Union over a defined timescale because we'll be out against our will. And I think it's a way back. Also, an additional thing around that, you know, you, you hear a lot about the economics of all this, and I'm not an economist, but, you know, bear in mind that that then will be a conversation, not just between the British and Irish governments over a managed transition to a new constitutional arrangement on this island. That will also involve the European Union. And I think a neglected discussion in this debate at the moment is the role that the EU might play in relation to support for a transition to new constitutional arrangements on this island that ultimately, I think, are in the best interests of both Ireland and the European Union. One of the things I've been arguing recently along this, and people sort of look askance at you when you say it, but increasingly I think it will be in the strategic, maybe even the selfish strategic interests of the European Union and the Irish government in a planned way to see the uh, end of the border on the island of Ireland via these referendums. Okay. Ideally, Colin, Irish Unity would see gains for everyone on the island. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about what the North would gain. But what could the South potentially stand to gain from a new shared Ireland, in your opinion? Part, part of this are argument again another great great question is is really that i think those arguing for uh, reunification are, you know are not arguing for a new shared ireland where everybody's worse off you know mm -hmm. where everyone's impoverished as a result you know part of part of the argument not the whole argument uh, around this because there are issues around partition itself uh in, in that are intrinsic to that are that you know Irish reunification is good for everyone on the island, good for people in the north and good for people in the south, that there'll be a managed transition where the economic aspect of that will be managed over a period of time in a sensible and prepared way. But I think ultimately, look, and all the, all the evidence that, that, that I can see in relation to the island is that after almost 100 years, Partition has not been good for this island. It's damaged everyone on the island in a multiplicity of ways. So, you know, part of the argument for unification is that it will benefit people in the south, it will benefit people in the north in political, social, cultural and economic ways. It will make the island better for everyone. And I suppose, like any withdrawal agreement, if um, the unity vote was won and England decided to... Another leave, backstop. Another backstop. There, there will be money pledged by the English government for the establishment of a 32-county Ireland over a phased period. There will be money, obviously, from the Irish government, uh, dare I say, uh, money coming from America, the European Union. So that 
definitely would give the structures the injection of um, cash yeah. to get things properly up and running initially. Um, what would that be a fair assessment? I think that 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 that, that is a fair assessment. There's, there's a number of steps to this. Obviously, there's planning and preparing for the actual referendums themselves. I know just absolutely clear today that that needs to be a stage processed and managed in, in a sensible way over a number of years. Not going to happen uh, next week. But that's equally true about what happens next. If there's a vote, uh, if the votes work out for Irish reunification, bear in mind that that will be a managed transition over a number of years, managed and negotiated between both governments. And I've underlined today that I think a British-Irish intergovernmental framework for this will be absolutely vital, but also managed with the European Union. You know, one of the most helpful interventions in the last few years in this debate is the EU has made crystal clear we will return automatically to the EU. That's going to be a big proposition in relation to a referendum on this issue, that we don't have any of the problems about having to... Re we're straight back into the European Union. That means the European Union also has a part to play in that managed transition as well. It will be done over a number of years. There are many, many scare stories about this invention, about the economics of that. I'm not an economist, but I've, I've seen the evidence around this. And I think what some of the myths around this don't take into account is the sense in which this will be a managed transition over time, at the end of which both the north and south of this island over the longer term will be better off because the division of this island over the last nearly 100 years have been a disaster for the Ireland for the island, and there's a sense in which what we're doing, and you know, the the great thing about these podcasts and about these discussions is, and about the moment that we're in, is that we're trying to sit down together, at together in the broadest possible sense, and write the script for this island together for the next hundred years. We know the mistakes we've made, all of us. We know the mistakes all of us have made in the last hundred years. But, but let's do something different in the next 100 years. I think before we leave the conversation of Irish unity and the EU alone, um, it would be fair to say having a conversation never hurt anyone. I think that's right. And it's, it's important. Language matters mm -hmm. right, in terms of, of this discussion. I think what's been remarkable, and I've been at a number of events, and you'll see these events as well, as well, in terms of how much people have really tried very, very hard to shape this as a discussion about sharing, a discussion about conversation and dialogue, and a discussion in the language of invitation. But it also has to be a discussion, let's also be clear, based on parity of esteem and mutual respect. It needs to be a civilised conversation. And what's been a bit dispiriting this year, I have to say, and I saw it at the waterfront before and after to some extent, is that particularly for those who want to argue for Irish reunification, there's still a tendency in this society to, to, to do the sorts of things you've mentioned, to label that in certain ways, to sort of, you know, airbrush people out of the conversation as soon as they put up their hand and they want to talk about it. And I think that needs to stop because people are taking great care to take a responsible approach to this discussion. And there's nothing wrong with having a conversation. You're absolutely right. And I need that conversation to be inclusive. And a conversation is two way. And one of the things I would put out today, if I turn up at a conversation, you know, and just give you the final outcome, in a 800 page blueprint then i'm not i'm not having a conversation with me you're i'm having a conversation about my document it can't be predetermined yeah. but i think you know if we're going to have a conversation 
the outcome needs to come after the dialogue, yeah. after the conversation. That seems like co- common sense, yeah, but Colin. But, but I think that's <laughs> there's a, not too much common sense used here at times. Um, I think that's important, and that's why the issue of the assembly deliberative forum matters so much. It needs to be genuinely deliberative, so there's a sense which people will will lobby and they'll argue for their their particular points of view. But that whatever emerges, a document that emerges, people feel like they co-own it. The political commentator David McGann on a recent podcast with us suggested that no Irish unity can come unless it's through the mechanism of Stormont. What do you think about that? I, p- part of me feels that, you know, I've put a lot of emphasis on the Good Friday Agreement. And I think the Good Friday Agreement is under sustained assault at the moment and attack. Like there's there's no doubt about that. I I've also made clear that this conversation needs to be framed ideally by the institutions and values of the Good Friday Agreement. You know, in a sense, there are people out there who are hostile to this agreement. There are people out there who are glad power sharing isn't working. They're glad that North South Ministerial Council isn't operating. They're glad that those frameworks aren't working. They want to see the end of the Good Friday Agreement. I don't think we can let that happen. However, I also have to be clear is, you know, for many people in this society, there is no stomach whatsoever for a return to those institutions on the basis that they were working on the past. And that's where I come back to the Good Friday Agreement. If the institutions, if the mechanisms return to the values of parity of esteem, mutual respect, equality of treatment, you know, the aspirations are genuinely regarded as equally legitimate. If there is an Irish Language Act, which is a big signifier practically and symbolically for parity of esteem, then, you know, we should be arguing for the return of the institutions because, you know, there are those out there who want to do the Good Friday Agreement harm and, and you know, we can't let them kill off the Good Friday Agreement. You mentioned there um, an Irish language act. Colin, why do you think the Irish language is opposed so strongly here and why is it such a stumbling block for the institutions? Uh, seemingly it's a, the main issue why we have no assembly. I. Part of me, in answer to that, would say I don't understand it because I'm bemused by it. It seems to me that promises were made in relation to the Irish language, and I think there are promises that need to be followed through. So I am personally mystified as to why this is creating such a stumbling block. You know, because of what happens within the UK in relation to language rights, what happens in terms of around these islands. So. I am bemused, and but the worry about it is, for me, is that I hope what it doesn't signify is unionist and loyalist disrespect for basic principles of the Good Friday Agreement around parity of esteem, mutual respect, uh, and equal treatment. You know, I hope it doesn't signify that. But at the moment, I'm mystified. I think unionism is making a massive strategic mistake in relation to, to some of this. I think unionism needs to take a very bold, generous and imaginative step in relation to this. If this is to be a, you know, a shared society, a fair society going forwards. So part of me thinks I don't understand it, you know, but part of me is deeply worried because I'm deeply worried because what it says to me is there are sectors of the society that fundamentally don't respect the basic principles at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement, and that's a real major concern. Can I ask you a very simple question here? What does anyone have to fear from a language? 
Um, again, I, I, you know, in some sense, I'm repeating. I, I don't get. I don't. I don't. I don't get it. Nothing. I have nothing to fear. <laughs> I, I, I don't get the anxiety uh, uh, and concern around this. Uh, you know, there are suggestions as some, you know, an existential question for unionism here. But you know, for me, it's a rather simpler question about the values of the Good Friday Agreement. You know, it would be a major step. It would be hugely practically and symbolically important, but ultimately, like a lot of the Good Friday Agreement, it's about promises. And people got to a point in 2016, 2017, where they were fed up. They'd had enough of promises not being delivered. And this, this joins a long line, I'm afraid, of issues that haven't been delivered from the Good Friday Agreement. I keep referring back to previous guests we've had on our Shared Ireland podcast mm-hmm. here, but we also did one with Linda Irvine. Mm-hmm. And Linda, as I'm sure you know, yeah. um, holds up yeah. to maybe 15 yeah. Irish classes yeah. in East Belfast every week. Yeah. And Linda told me that I think it was nearly 70% yeah. of the people attending her classes yeah. are from the unionist background, which I found was remarkable, but obviously fascinating yeah. and brilliant yeah. to see that. Yeah. So I think, you know, people are slowly but surely realising that it's only a language. You know, nobody's forcing anybody to speak it. Yeah. Nobody's forcing it down anyone's throat. Yeah. Is it possible that certain unionist parties have got the, the pulse of their community wrong on this one? I think that's that that's true, and that that's a concern. I think I want to commend Linda for the work that she's doing. I think that's right in the sense that you know, it should be absolutely clear. Language, Irish language, belongs to everyone, on in this society. Uh, on on this island, and there should be no fear around it. And you know, Linda's work has held that out and shown that. I think you know, as I've said already, I think unionism is making a major, major mistake on this issue. You know, a smart unionist, you know, a strategic thinking unionist would recognise that there's a need for imagination and gen- generosity here, but that's not been recognised at the moment. Okay, just <clears throat> moving on to something that has um, become very topical over this past week or two. What are your thoughts, Colin, on the Sinn Féin Vice Presidency Leadership Challenge by John O'Dowd on Michelle O'Neill? Well, maybe broaden out the discussion. I, th- I think w- w- what we need to highlight, in a sense, is that there's a bigger conversation happening on the island uh, within what might be broadly termed sort of nationalist, republican constituency, you know, about, about uh, how the island goes forward in the future. And, you know, the debate within Sinn Féin is just one part of that. There are many, many political parties, there are many civic actors on the island. Like, I, th- I think I, uh, you know, welcome debate. It's good to have a conversation. You know, our whole discussion today has been anchored in, in the sense of conversation. So I think let's, let's have the discussion. Let's have the debate. We're in a major moment, really, particularly for nationalist Republican parties on the island of Ireland, as to where, you know, nationalism Republican goes, goes next what to do faced with these sort of seismic historic events. So I think the more conversation in all the parties, this might, mightn't be the only political party, Sinn Féin mightn't be the only party having this conversation about issues of leadership and direction and all that. I think it's great to see welcome discussion and dialogue in any political party, in any civic movement, because, you know, we have to be talking about what are major historic moments and how we take this forward in a reflective, calm way based on teasing out all the options. Just before we go, Colin, <clears throat> describe your vision of Ireland in 20 years' time, please. 
Okay. Um, look into your crystal ball. Look, crystal ball. Well, I think one of the things that I've worked very hard on for most, you know, for my life, most of my life really has been in the area of human rights and equality. And I would like to think that Ireland will be a world leader in relation to human rights, equality and social justice in the years ahead, both in relation to the island of Ireland itself and as a global actor as well, that, that Ireland will come to see itself as a, a champion really around the world of, of human rights, but also that it brings some of that home to Ireland itself. So is that Ireland becomes a sort of leader in that area. And one thing that really concerns me at the moment on the island is around social and economic rights, around issues of poverty, uh, around issues of homelessness, the education system north and south, the health systems north and south, that really we give social and economic rights on this island much more prominence than we do at the moment. But you'll not, maybe not be surprised for where this goes next. I think that in the next 20 years, that, that a major priority is to, in a planned and prepared way, have the conversation about bringing what is really the main division on the island of Ireland to a peaceful and democratic end as a way of returning this region to the European Union of really learning the lessons of the last hundred years of seeing that the division on this island ultimately has done nobody any good but thinking how we move away from that on a managed way. So I see the next 20 years as a major constitutional conversation about a new future, a new shared future on this island. I would put human rights, equality and social justice at the heart of that because I want to see people's lives changed in this conversation. You know, we don't want to have shared misery on the island. We want to share and enjoy a culture of respect for human rights and equality. So I would like to see a reconciled, peaceful, shared and unified Ireland emerge over the next 20 years and I would like to be involved and participate in that conversation and I'd also like to encourage everyone young people everyone to be involved in that discussion because rather than approach it in a sort of angst-ridden fearful way you know think about that uh, we're about to embark we are embarking on a major constitutional conversation about how we shape this island how we learn the lessons of the last hundred years how we all do some things differently, how we protect the environment better in the next hundred years, you know, shared island that we genuinely all love and respect and nurture and protect. I think that's an energizing conversation. I think that could be a dynamic conversation. It's a conversation that people will want to be involved in. But ultimately for me in 20 years time, we have to be in a better space than we are now. And for me, the test of that will be whether we're talking about Cork, Dublin, Derry or Belfast or Newry, that the lives of the most marginal and vulnerable children, for example, in this society are different, that the script for children's lives isn't written from mm -hmm. the moment that they're born, depending on their postcode or where they live on this island, mm -hmm. that we've really transformed the island. And the test for me of that peaceful New Ireland is if people's lives are genuinely better, if the lives of the marginalised, vulnerable, uh, have changed radically uh, and you know that needs to be part of the conversation about New Ireland too. Okay Colin we're 55 minutes into the podcast <clears throat> and unfortunately time is against us. Yeah. There's many other subjects I would love to have talked to you about but maybe you'll come back to us again on a later date. Yeah. I would love to speak to you about legacy, victims, mental health and 
subjects like this, but um, you'll come back to us sometime. Will well, you? one thing I do do want to mention <clears throat> before we end, it links into the the last point I, I made, is that uh, one of the neglected components of the Good Friday Agreement, we've talked about Irish language act as well as remember too that the good friday agreement talks about a bill of rights for this region it talks about a charter of rights for the island of ireland i know what's really heartbreaking for me tragedy as well is that a lot of those human rights and equality promises of the good friday agreement around transforming this region now they just haven't been delivered mm -hmm. and i think we need to bring those back into the conversation because you know delivering those things now for the island and for the north now is a part of the way of leveraging those into the new conversation mm -hmm. about where we want to go in the future as well. So, you know, bear in mind, we've talked about Irish Language Act, but there's no Bill of Rights. There's no Charter of Rights for the island of mm -hmm. Ireland. We've seen the, the Northern Human Rights Commission be decimated in recent years as well. So, you know, we need fundamental change in relation to rights and equality in the here and now as a way of leveraging that into the conversation about the future based on the principle of equivalence, which is in the Good Friday Agreement too. All to be talked about when you come back to join us in a future podcast. Thank you very much. Last question, Colin, and the one that everybody dreads. Yeah. If you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, they can be alive or dead, who would they be and why? That is a very, very difficult question. I'm now trying to think where, let me think. Um, so a f filmmaker... Let's have film. So I have some of Terence Malick, whose films I really okay. very, very, very much enjoy. Be interesting to N name a few of his uh, best known films. I think the Thin Red Line, <clears throat> oh, so okay. a Tree of Life, okay. uh, things like that. He's an acquired taste, but I, I really much enjoy Terence Malick a lot. Uh, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, very I good. think, would be very interested. Somebody who I, you know, utterly, you know, admire. Uh, uh, I'd be very, very interested to talk to her. Dr. Margaret Ward has yep. just published a book yep. about Hannah. Yeah, Hannah would be somebody whose views would be very helpful in the current context. And Margaret Ward would be there as well, I think. Um, novelist Marlon Robinson, I think I would like to, uh, to, to, to have there to have probably gone over three. No, no, no. And there's a Spanish novelist, actually, Javi Marias, uh, who's written a number of books that, that, that I really, really enjoy very much. Um, it'd be good to have him there uh, as, as well. So uh, off the top of my head, that's, that's, that's a range of people. I think in particular, it would be good to have Hannah's views at the moment about mm, where we absolutely. should go in the next 100 years on this island. So. Certainly. One last quick question. Why do you not do social media, Carl? Why do I not social do, do use social media? <laughs> My life is is complicated <laughs> enough. I but can I, imagine. I, but I do have as pe anybody who's seen my stuff will know I have developed an addiction to blogs. So, yes, yes. So I, I've written quite a lot of blogs, but uh, no, I'm staying off Twitter. You, you've for you've now. got a lot to answer for. Let me tell you by your blogs because I find myself um, passing hours and hours reading them, and I get end up getting nothing done. <laughs> but I suppose, no, it's a, it's a good point, but I suppose there's a serious point to that as well in in terms of. Like I spent a lot of my life working on books and academic articles, you know, that are lengthy, sort of footnote-laden sort of things that they go in the library and perhaps, you know, half a dozen people mm. at most ever read. Yes. I think there is an obligation on academics and others to engage Absolutely. in the public sphere yeah. and to try and engage in ways that are accessible to people that people will engage with and read. And so although I'm not on Twitter, I'm not on Facebook and all that stuff, I have tried to write 
in blogs because I think it's important to be able to communicate some of the things that we're mm -hmm. talking about in an accessible way as possible to as many people on an on an open access platform yeah. that nobody has to pay anything to access. They can yes. freely just download and have a look and think and, and also disagree and come back to me and say where well, I've got things wrong too. So yeah. thank you. Professor Colin Harvey, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. On behalf of Shared Ireland and our listeners, I'd like to sincerely thank you for giving up your valuable time. And um, we look forward to you joining us uh, sometime in the near future. Thank you and well done on all your work. Thank you very much. Coming from a man of um, your calibre, that's a great compliment. Thank you.